Chapter One of Some American Storytellers by Frederick Tabor Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One, Francis Marion Crawford. There is a peculiar satisfaction in undertaking a critical study of Mr. Marion Crawford in a volume which, by its very title, avows the intention of viewing the novelist primarily in his capacity of storyteller while it is quite true that an interesting plot is the indispensable cornerstone of successful fiction yet many of the biggest novels are not those in which the story-teller's art has reached its highest development they are big because they are not only stories but a great deal else besides fearless paintings of existing conditions trenchant criticisms of life and conversely many a novel faulty in structure false in colouring exaggerated in action to the point of melodrama has been vitalized by that magic instinct of the born story-teller that inimitable gift of making miracles seem plausible and convincing you that impossibilities could have happened simply by telling you with assured audacity that they really did happen consequently to approach a novelist primarily on the story-telling side is neither a direct road to discovering his permanent place in fiction nor a barrier to such discovery it simply determines the initial point of view avoids the trouble of making explanations and saving clauses and often makes possible a greater indulgence for shortcomings a more cordial recognition of merit in the case of mr crawford the advantages of this standpoint are sufficiently obvious whatever position may be assigned to him now or hereafter in english letters it must be conceded that he was first last and always a prince of story-tellers whose title was inborn and not acquired a little more than a quarter of a century ago when mr isaacs caught the attention of a volatile reading public there were those who predicted in view of its oddity of theme and treatment that the newly discovered author would never again repeat his initial success that mr crawford would remain in the class of authors of one book yet any one with a well-developed critical sense must have seen in mr isaacs beneath its oriental colouring and its mystical atmosphere the first flowing of that strong steady inexhaustible current of narration which has held its even way through upward of two-score volumes not one of which deserves the stigma of mediocrity while just a few possess a quality entitling them to a higher recognition than they have yet received there is yet another reason for preferring to treat of mr crawford primarily as a story-teller namely that it is the point of view from which he himself would have chosen to be treated the first axiom of all impartial and helpful criticism is that an author's work should be judged in the light of what he has intended to do most novelists of real importance have sooner or later expressed in print their theories of the art they practised but few have done so with the terse clearness the uncompromising conviction that characterised mr crawford's suggestive little monograph upon the novel what it is to the critic it is a most helpful little volume not for a better understanding of what constitutes a novel since there are a score of points on which one is inclined to take issue with the author but for a better understanding of mr crawford himself indeed it is scarcely too much to say that it is a convenient key to every one of his merits and defects and for that reason it seems wise to examine it somewhat carefully to quote from it rather freely and to get quite clearly before us just what are his theories of fiction and why those theories do not always bear the fruit which he expected to obtain from them in the first place then the novel is defined by mr crawford as a marketable commodity of the class collectively termed intellectual artistic luxuries in other words the first object of the novel is 
to amuse and interest the reader and a novelist is at all times under an implied contract with the prospective purchasers to give them the entertainment they are looking for and to attempt nothing more serious than entertainment it is not surprising therefore that he has no tolerance whatever for the purpose novel not merely because in art of all kinds the moral lesson is a mistake but for the more specific reason that the purpose novel is a simple fraud an odious attempt to lecture people who hate lectures to preach at people who prefer their own church and to teach people who think they know enough already the novel is nothing more nor less than a pocket theatre the novelist nothing more than a public amuser Quote, it is good to make people laugh it is sometimes salutary to make them shed tears it is best of all to make our readers think not too serious thoughts nor such as require an intimate knowledge of science and philosophy to be called thoughts at all but to think and thinking to see before them characters whom they might really like to resemble acting in scenes in which they themselves would like to take part mr crawford need not have added to the above paragraph a single word regarding his attitude toward romance and realism for it is obvious that the novelist who recognizes that his chief duty is to entertain and who deliberately purposes to leave out of his books all characters whom his readers would not like to resemble and all scenes in which his readers would not care to play a part must of necessity have scant sympathy for the realistic school or small use for the definition of the novel as a cross-section of life what he does have to say upon this subject is exactly in accord with what one would expect him to say zola he concedes somewhat reluctantly to have been a great man mightily coarse to no purpose but great nevertheless a nero of fiction but zola's shadow seen through the veil of the english realistic novel is a monstrosity not to be tolerated the fact that in our anglo-saxon system the young girl is everywhere seems to him in itself a sufficient reason why we should temper the wind of our realism to the sensitive innocence of the ubiquitous shorn lamb and after defining the realistic school as that which purposes to show men what they are and the romantic school as the one which tries to show men what they should be he frankly declares that for his part he believes that more good can be done by showing men what they may be ought to be or can be than by describing their greatest weaknesses with the highest art there is just one more paragraph which deserves to be emphasized because it touches quite unconsciously upon the source of the real weakness not only of mr crawford's novels but of the romantic school as a whole Quote, practically what we call a romantic life is one full of romantic incidents which come unsought as the natural consequence and result of a man's or a woman's character it is therefore necessarily an exceptional life and as such should have an exceptional interest for the majority now there cannot be any question that the theory contained in this paragraph is admirable the trouble is that as a working formula it almost never succeeds even in mr crawford's own novels admirable as they are for he understands beyond question the technique of his craft it would puzzle the critic to point out any one romantic life made up solely of incidents which have come unsought as the natural consequence and result of the man's character the hidden flaw in all romantic fiction is due to the fact that the incidents which come unsought as the result of character rarely show the romantic quality which a scott a dumas a stevenson demands the novelist may take the greatest pains in his selection of exceptional types of men and women and may show equal care in bringing them together under exceptional conditions 
nevertheless in nine cases out of ten if he leaves them alone to follow consistently their natural bent if he does not actively intervene and force them to say no or to say yes if he does not check and harass and complicate their actions by the intervention of blind illogical fate in the shape of disaster disease and death he will find them naturally and quietly doing the normal and obvious thing and frustrating his hope of providing that exceptional interest which is demanded by the majority in mr isaacs perhaps quite as consistently as in any of his later books mr crawford evolved a long series of highly romantic happenings directly from the peculiar temperament of his hero yet take away the element of chance the accidental blow on the head received by isaacs in the game of polo the coincidence which made miss westenhoff's brother the unknown benefactor of isaacs in his days of poverty and finally the girl's illness and death from jungle fever and the story would necessarily have had a radically different and more prosaic ending in saracinesca and sant'ilario the most admirably real of all mr crawford's italian stories the fact remains that the vital issues of the plot arise in the one case out of a purely chance identity of names between two distant cousins and in the other from an almost incredible series of coincidences a lost pin a stolen envelope a forged letter now in romantic fiction there is no logical objection to the use of chance accident fate call it what you will the mistake lies in trying to write romance in accordance with a realistic formula and to convince the reader that sane men and women did strange unlikely deeds as the direct result of their own characters mr crawford however in a measure disarms criticism by confessing genially that he is himself the last of literary sinners his creed so far as he has one slips on and off easily like a well-worn glove in theory as we have seen he advocates romance in practice he is in turn realist psychologue mystic whatever for the moment suits his needs or appeals to his instinct of born storyteller his stage setting his local colour are painted in from life with scrupulous fidelity a balzac or a zola could not be more faithful to reality in matters of topography you may at any time if you please trace the peregrinations of count scariatine through the back alleys of munich or of paul patoff through the labyrinthine paths of constantinople and his people are as real as his streets and houses the whole world knows that his mr isaacs was drawn direct from life the original being a certain mr jacobs a trader in rare jewels who later came into note through his dispute with the nizam of deccan over the price of the great empress diamond had you talked with mr crawford about his other characters you would have learned that there was nothing exceptional in the case of mr isaacs he would have told you with a quiet smile that the men and women who thronged the pages of his saracinesca trilogy were all real people whom he had for the most part known and liked well that corona was still living that spica was a composite portrait of a cadaverous pole and a famous neapolitan duellist who died a few years ago that count scariatine the crazed nobleman in a cigarette-maker's romance was in reality a german count who once a week just as in the story left his workbench in the little tobacco-shop and sat at home waiting in vain for a summons to the bavarian court that viera the russian girl who sold her hair to pay the count's debt of honour was also a reality and that even fischlowitz's dingy tobacco-shop with the absurd mechanical figure of the viennese giggle in the window existed in munich exactly as mr crawford drew it and was in fact the shop where he went day after day to buy his cigarettes 
his method then may be summed up somewhat after this fashion he begins by taking a real stage setting some one of the many corners of the world of which his cosmopolitan experience has given him intimate knowledge he brings upon the stage a group of real people of strong and interesting personality whom he has known and studied from the life idealizing them to suit his purpose yet not so much as to mar the illusion of reality and having up to this point held himself in check he now gives free rein to his imagination and puts these thoroughly real people through a series of highly romantic adventures forcing them to think and say and do many things which our sober second judgment tells us they never would have said or thought or done and yet with his inborn power of story-telling convincing us for the time being that it all must have happened exactly as he assures us that it did it would be futile to attempt to survey in detail any large number of mr crawford's two-score novels nor would any very useful purpose be served were it practical to do so there is a surprisingly large proportion of his books which a critic may quite safely ignore books which one and all maintain an even quality of interest yet add nothing to our estimate of him as a man or artist as is well nigh inevitable in a novelist who never allows himself to forget that novel writing is a business and who has brought the technique of construction almost to a mechanical routine the difference between his earlier and later books is mainly a loss of spontaneity and an increased conventionality in plot and character mr crawford did not write himself out to use the phrase which he declared was so terrible for any author to hear his average standard during his closing years was far nearer to that of his best work than that of mr howells let us say comes to silas lapham nearer indeed than many other novelists whom the world has chosen to honour could come to his own best achievement after a quarter of a century of unremitted toil it is nevertheless a fact that the volumes which one feels inclined to single out for specific discussion all belong to the first decade of mr crawford's literary activity mr isaacs of course must remain one of the volumes which will be read as long as mr crawford continues to be remembered crude though it may be in construction and uneven in style it nevertheless remains a rather remarkable achievement one of those rare first efforts that are nothing short of a sheer stroke of genius it is usually an unwise experiment to read over in maturity a story which gave keen pleasure in early youth yet if the present writer may be allowed to cite his own personal experience mr isaacs is one of the books that stand the test surprisingly well mr crawford himself admitted that he was most fortunate in having begun his literary career with this particular book theosophy was in the air kipling had not yet preempted the field of india for fiction and there was moreover a certain mingling of poetry and cynicism of mature experience and youthful enthusiasm that went well with the strange theme and the vivid colouring and one may seriously question whether any single volume written by marion crawford in the height of his powers could have duplicated the success of mr isaacs if put forth as the first novel of an unknown author dr claudius which followed mr isaacs within the year may well be passed over with the comment that for a book so badly handicapped the wonder was that it succeeded at all as has very truly been said a learned heidelberg ph d however sentimental and yellow-bearded is a less attractive conception than a youthful and pure-blooded iranian adventurer whose glowing eyes outshine his jewels yet but for the caprice of fate it might have been known to the world as mr crawford's first book for it had been in the hands of the publishers many months before mr isaacs was issued of the books which followed at an average rate of two volumes a year 
a roman singer was notable for that extreme simplicity of style which has since become one of mr crawford's most effective assets marzio's crucifix as representing a long step forward in the technique of unity of plot Khaled as the most effective and artistic of all the author's purely fanciful efforts but the volumes which it seems worth while to single out for more detailed comment are the three fates a cigarette-maker's romance and the saracinesca trilogy it is a curious and unexplained fact that when the topic of mr crawford's novels comes up in a company of fairly well-read men and women and they have all expressed a more or less intelligent opinion about the ralstons and don orsino and fair margaret if you then make mention of the three fates you are likely to find that no one present has read the book nor one in ten even heard of it yet it is easily the best of mr crawford's new york stories it is simply not in the same class with Catherine Lauderdale and Marion Darsh. The people in it are all thoroughly alive. At times they tempt one to say that they are the most intensely alive of any characters Mr. Crawford has ever drawn. The principal figure is a young and struggling author, making the rounds of New York publishing houses and striving to win a hearing for his first novel. It takes no very profound intuition to guess that there is a modicum of autobiography worked into the pages of the three fates, and its author makes no attempt to deny it. If Mr. Crawford was asked which of his American stories he personally liked best, this is the one that he was almost sure to name. Adding, with a reminiscent sigh of mingled satisfaction and regret, The fact is, I put a great deal of myself into the three fates the personal touch is of course an all-sufficient reason to explain the author's preference but a critic's choice should rest on a sounder basis and in this case such a basis is to be found in the rather exceptional study it contains of some phases of love where both the man and the women are quite young the emotions of mature men and women are comparatively easy to chronicle they know life too well to jeopardize their happiness with imaginary woes but the very young are prone to magnify their troubles and their grievances to torture themselves over trivial faults and absurd scruples which are of course for the time being as vital and momentous to them as profounder trials are to those of riper years and the task of interpreting these youthful crises with sympathetic understanding and a touch of indulgent irony is one which just a few novelists successfully achieve one recalls especially certain chapters in william black's madcap violet and mr howell's april hopes and to these may be added the three fates as in several of mr crawford's earlier volumes the construction is faulty there is no clear-cut central theme the most that can be said for the plot is that the author has sought to show how a young man of keenly sensitive artistic temperament may in those vital formative years when his life's career is just opening before him find his ideals of womanhood so subtly and yet so radically modified that in a comparatively brief space he has been able to love tenderly and sincerely three different women and to receive from each in turn a permanent impression a modification of his character which time will only strengthen and yet as the first and the second successfully withdraw themselves from his life he knows that there can be no going back even should they so elect they have been very dear to him they have each played the part of one of the fates in his life yet there is no resurrection for the emotions which are dead and at the end of the story the man sobered by sorrow and toil and hard-won achievement even more than by the sudden and unforeseen responsibility of great wealth hesitates to put to the test the last of his three fates 
he knows that this time there is no question of a transitory passion but rather the deep lasting love of mature manhood this third woman means so much in his life that even her friendship is a precious thing which he fears to jeopardize by speaking prematurely this denouement of the three fates is one of the most artistic and felicitous single touches to be found in mr crawford's writings we know that the third and greatest opportunity is merely deferred not lost yet the contrast between the boy's precipitancy and the man's delay is the best measure of the difference in kind as well as in degree between the earlier and the later love it is customary to regard the cycle of italian novels beginning with the saracenesca trilogy and continued in corleone and taquisera as the strongest and most finished work that the author of a roman singer has produced this however is not the view held by those critics who have made the most careful study of his novels nor is it the view held by mr crawford himself indeed he has sometimes expressed a doubt whether on the whole his italian stories have not been more of a detriment to him than a help the public seemed to expect them of him he explains and so confined his activity to that particular field when he would much rather have directed it elsewhere of these italian books as a whole it may be said that they have at least the merit of presenting to english readers a comprehensive picture of social life in italy such as cannot be found elsewhere in english fiction the fact that mr crawford was born in rome and spent much of his early life there and that later he deliberately elected to make italy his permanent home placed him in a position to write from the standpoint of a native in fact he is on firmer ground and writes with a more assured knowledge when the scene is laid in rome than when the action takes place in boston or new york nevertheless while they are his most ambitious efforts even the best of them even saracinesca and sant'elario have not the artistic charm and unity possessed by several slighter works and the reason is not hard to find saracinesca and its sequels belong to the type best defined as the epic novel the type wherein a great social movement a moral or political revolution drawing to a climax serves as the background of the story while the destiny of some special group some single family some individual man or woman closely interwoven with the progress of the general movement forms the central thread of the plot the focus of interest at first sight saracinesca seems to fulfil the conditions of the epic novel the setting is rome on the eve of the downfall of the pope's temporal power and the achievement of a united italy and the central thread concerns itself with the fortunes of a single family the saracinesca proud conservative loyal adherents of the church yet when we study the book's construction a little closer we realize that the relation between the general and the specific theme is of the most perfunctory sort the historical background is admirable as a piece of verbal painting it shows on the surface the days of careful study which its author acknowledges that he wrought into its construction but it fails to be properly speaking an epic novel because there is no close and necessary connection between the historical movement then going on in italy and the private drama of the saracinesca family take any one of the big unmistakably epic novels whether it be uncle tom's cabin or zola's l'assommoir the epic of slavery or of intemperance you will find the central theme inseparably interwoven with the general the fate of uncle tom symbolic of the slave system the fate of gervaise symbolic of the demon of alcohol in saracinesca and st hilario there is no such close connection no central symbol 
nor did mr crawford intend that there should be for the symbolic novel is next of kin to the purpose novel it teaches and preaches and does other kindred things which conflict with the creed which mr crawford professed nevertheless oddly enough don orsino much inferior to its predecessors in human interest is in point of structure much more logical and correct in fact it may be called an epic of the era of disastrous building speculation in rome and the fact that don orsino's fortunes were closely entangled in the general panic which resulted gives us the connection between the general and the special motif which this type of novel demands in point of form however mr crawford has never done anything more perfect than a cigarette-maker's romance in dimensions it is a rather long novelette in structure it obeys the rules of the short story rather than those of the novel it contains no superfluous character or incident and its time of action is confined within a space of thirty-six hours it seems worth while even at the risk of repeating what must already be familiar to a majority of mr crawford's readers to run over briefly the substance of this little masterpiece count scariatin a russian of noble birth who has quarrelled with his father and has been disowned is eking out a pitiful living by rolling cigarettes for a thrifty munich tobacconist disappointment and privation have so preyed upon his mind that he has become affected with a periodic delusion that a letter has come from russia restoring him to his lost position and that messengers from his family will visit him on the morrow once a week under the spell of this delusion he absents himself from the tobacco shop and waits in confidence all day only to awaken when the clock tolls midnight to a shuddering realization of his abnormal condition on the particular night when the story opens count scariatin's periodic delusion is just coming upon him once again he tells his employer the familiar story of the letter from russia the friends who will come to-morrow the necessity of his bidding the tobacconist good-bye the tobacconist's wife who refuses to believe any part of the count's story or even that he is a count at all rudely breaks in upon him with a claim for money the value of a stolen mechanical figure a viennese giggle for the loss of which the count is in reality not responsible incensed however by the woman's attitude and relying upon the visionary fortune which he expects upon the morrow count scariatin rashly gives his word of honour that the value of the guiguerre shall be paid within twenty-four hours the next day runs its usual course and the evening finds the count slowly struggling to a consciousness that not only have his friends failed to come but that he has pledged his honour to pay a sum of money which he does not possess and has no hope of raising in time and that he is not willing to live dishonoured the rest of the story tells how viera the humble russian girl who day after day has rolled cigarettes side by side with the count and learned to love him with dumb hopelessness discovers his desperate need and comes to his aid how the count under the spell of his temporary insanity declares his love for her and makes extravagant promises of the wonderful things he will do for her as soon as his estates are restored to him how she raises the money needed to save his honour and how finally when on the morrow the count returns as usual to his bench and the friends he has so long awaited actually do arrive and bring him word that he is sole heir to his father's wealth he presents to them the humble little cigarette-maker as the future countess scariatine i had contracted a debt of honour and i had nothing wherewith to pay it there was but an hour left an hour and then my life and my honour would have gone together she saved me gentlemen she cut off her beautiful hair from her head and sold it for me 
but that is not the reason why she is to be my wife there is a better reason than that i love her gentlemen with all my heart and soul and she has told me that she loves me it is in passages such as this that we get the key to mr crawford's perennial hold upon the hearts of his readers his real strength lies not in his mastery of technique or his originality of plot but in his ability to picture for us honest gentlemen and noble women whom we are the better for having known if only through the medium of the printed page if there is room for choice his men are better than his women more finely drawn with subtler understanding there is a long list of them whom you cannot forget even if you would even in saracinesca alone there are a whole group whom it is a joy to remember old saracinesca with his chronic fondness for quarrelling with his well-loved son the melancholy spica whose fame in duels made him a memento mori wherever he went even astradente the worn-out old dandy shows at the last certain fine instincts which make us glad of the privilege of having known him it is doubtful whether any of the novelists who are writing to-day have given the world so many characters whom the average reader will remember with pleasure and years afterwards recall by name what place will be ultimately assigned to mr crawford in the history of fiction it is somewhat early to predict excepting as a conservative force it is doubtful whether he has influenced the formal development of the modern novel in any important degree in a history of technique he could not be cited in the way that henry james or emile zola must be cited over and over again as the inventor of a peculiar manner or the founder of a new school writers of a more striking and flamboyant type leave a trail behind them as conspicuous as the tail of a comet gabriel d'annunzio for instance from the moment that he sprang into public notice radiated a clear and ever-widening circle of influence the effects of which can be easily traced by any one who cares to take the trouble in the younger generation of continental writers his imitators are as conspicuous as they would be if he had chosen to wear a scarlet necktie and they had chosen to copy him in that it would be difficult to imagine marian crawford ever having done anything in a literary way sufficiently flaunting to warrant the symbolism of a red necktie he remained from first to last as he wished to remain wholly free from mannerism and one of the qualities which give to his books an unconscious charm is a simplicity of style and method which may be compared to that rare good taste in dress which does not draw attention to itself it has sometimes been claimed that mr crawford was in a measure responsible for the modern spread of cosmopolitanism in fiction but at best it must have been a remote influence since his was that of that rare and perfect kind that few others possess the skill to imitate we have of course a surfeit of novelists who choose to lay their scenes all the way around the world and back again and while they lead us on a gay chase across three continents their point of view all the time remains insularly british or aggressively american with this type of pseudo-cosmopolitanism that of mr crawford has nothing in common it has often been said of him that he was one of the very few americans who had been mistaken in paris for a frenchman in munich for a german and in rome for an italian and this power of assimilating racial traits and standpoints he carried over into his novels he was not so much a cosmopolitan in the sense of a man whose home is the world as he was a man who has chanced to have a succession of different homes in widely scattered portions of the globe his fondness for the cities where he successively stayed and worked for munich and prague constantinople and rome and paris always gets into his pages in spite of him and passes on something of its contagion to the reader from between the lines 
it is distinctly worth noting that he has always from choice written of what was near at hand mr isaacs his first book it is true was written after his return to america but before the first intensity of his impressions had begun to fade and it is significant that although he had a rich store of material as a result of his two years residence in india he never again reverted to it there was in particular one story drawn from the earlier life of the man who served as prototype of mr isaacs which mr crawford had mapped out and even so recently as two years before his death still talked of writing but it was one of the books destined to remain unwritten yet whatever other influence marian crawford may have exerted it is at least beyond question that few novelists of the present day have been more widely read or have had a more salutary effect in fostering a taste for what is clean and pure and high-minded in literature and in life he has shown that it is possible to win and hold a very wide public while maintaining a certain high standard of literary quality he has shown that it is possible to offer social and domestic problems that will appeal to mature and thoughtful readers and at the same time contain nothing which one might hesitate to put into the hands of the young and thoughtless he has set in these respects a sort of high-water mark for fiction which frankly and honestly professes only to entertain and in doing this he is largely responsible for the increased proportion of clean healthy vigorous fiction that our younger writers are giving us to-day nevertheless he occupies a position somewhat apart from the general trend of the novel of to-day and of to-morrow and for that reason he is somewhat difficult to class almost any comparison that one ventures to make is likely to strike a majority of readers as odd and unjustified recently one of the english reviews spoke of him as approaching most nearly to trollope and mrs oliphant a curious partnership which the writer wisely did not try to justify in purpose and ideals as well as in the uniformly readable quality of his books he suggests a certain kinship with the late william black yet of the two mr crawford is undeniably the finer artist as well as the better story-teller with a far better chance of being remembered by a later generation and whatever position is ultimately assigned to him one thing is certain that the general tendency of academic criticism will be to do him ampler justice and concede to him a higher meed of praise than he has hitherto received End of chapter one